0: You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today.
1: I know just speaking for myself, in the way that I do my work, I've worked with so many amazing people. And like you, have helped people really grow, expand their income, expand their markets. Not being somebody who necessarily markets all the time saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, you know, here's all the, (laughs) here's all the work that I'm doing can sometimes not have people really understand the work that you're doing, which is why it's always important to, you know, to tell the story in an effective way.
0: That was Pam Slim, return guest, dear friend, and author of the new book, The Widest Net. She joins me today to discuss how building your business from an ecosystem paradigm as opposed to an empire paradigm, changes everything. From how you do marketing, to the partners you choose, to how you build a beacon for your brand. If business as usual doesn't resonate with you, but you know there's another way to be successful at starting and growing your business, this episode's for you. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, onto the show. Pam, thanks so much for joining me again. I've been excited about this book and this project for a long, long time, and um, I'm really excited to see how you pulled it all together, and thanks for joining me to talk about it today.
1: I am super happy to be here. And yes, you have been along the entire journey <laughs> as I was
0: working on the ideas for the book and the book itself. Yeah, what I love about it, well, let me, let me pause here. Show us the arc from Body of Work to The Widest net.
1: I actually see the arc in the trilogy because it was after writing this book and really being mostly done with it that I look back at the three books now that I've written, the first being Escape from Cubicle Nation, the second Body of Work, and now The Widest Net, and realize it actually was somewhat of a trilogy. For people in my early days of my coaching business that were leaving corporate to start a business, simply the act of being able to extricate themselves from corporate was the huge, like first part of the Star Wars series (laughs) where it seemed like that was the biggest thing is just escaping and... Starting a business that was financially sound, that was able to take care of themselves in to the level that they had experienced as a corporate employee. And so that really was the focus of the book about how to do that successfully while not sacrificing your financial well-being. And what I found with many, many clients after they did that, that they, once they did it, they either loved it and began to evolve their business in a variety of different ways Or they said, what in the world was I thinking now that I'm doing this full time, it actually is harder than I thought, or I don't enjoy it like I thought. And for some of them that were going back into corporate, they were feeling some shame. And Body of Work, I really wrote as a response to that saying, there's nothing magical about working for yourself. We need to have a framework in the way in which we look at what it is that we're building in our career that can happen through a variety of different work modes so body of work i always call it a love letter to creation it's really about what you create what do you want to create and what with what work mode which naturally leads to the widest net which is now that you know what you want to build how do you actually build an audience how do you build a customer base and really having a thriving business for that work
0: yeah, thanks so much for, for pulling that out because, um, you know, I've been seeing the evolution of your body of work since then, no pun intended, but right, just seeing that time and time again. And I really appreciated your, your little note there because I was going to say it if you didn't, that, you know, something that we both share is that we are all about supporting entrepreneurs at the same time that it's not that entrepreneurship is better than anything else. Right. Yeah. Not that owning your own business is, is the end all be all. Um, it, it's just a configuration of your body of work and an economic arrangement. And sometimes you know, like it makes more more better sense. And you know, what I don't want to pause here about because I don't know how many people know this is um, You've had different configurations of working. You've been an independent. You've been sort of in a partner business. Um, You've you've done a lot of different things, Mm. even after Escape that I think would be useful for people to see as a backdrop of, of what you've been up to and how this weaves in. So sort of tell us the story from Escape until, say, now.
1: Yeah. So for the in the early days of Escape from Cubicle Nation, I definitely wanted to structure the business as a as a virtual business. I had been a management consultant for the first 10 years of my business. And my husband and I had our, our first child, Josh, and I did not want to be on the road all the time. I loved learning about blogging in the world of the internet and having a virtual business. And that was really the main objective for about 10 years of doing that early stage work. As that work evolved, as happens for many folks, I began to really feel a longing for some of the other work that I had done, where I had a lot of clients that I actually worked with from the time they left into growing and building different stages and scaling their business. And that was work that was very comfortable and familiar to me, having helped scale businesses in Silicon Valley for 10 years and being very familiar with how to build a team and all the kind of founder issues that come with scaling. And I felt like I was a little bit limited in my scope. So that was something that led me to wanting to work with more people who were scaling their business. At the same time, it became really important for my husband and I as community members and parents to get more involved within our local community. And in particular, to be doing some specific work around equity and inclusion in our own home of of Mesa, Arizona. My husband is Navajo and as a native business owner, you know, I was so used to seeing so many amazing native business experts and we simply never saw that represented in on mainstream stages and opportunities to open places in main street. So about five years ago, we opened up the main street learning lab, which is an in-person incubator with a purpose of highlighting the leadership that exists, but is rarely seen within BIPOC, um, black, indigenous, people of color, entrepreneurs, and uh, really just have incubated a whole bunch of different projects and businesses on a very local level and have now become much more involved in the overall development of what we call the innovation district here downtown.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways you've been building this wide net of, you know, working with people, um, partnering with people. Um and so it, the interesting thing for me was is when I read The Widest Net again. Um this this could be a Charlie specific thing because of our relationship, but I was like, "Oh yeah, this is a brilliant marketing book, but I wouldn't have necessarily thought of you, Pam, as a marketing expert and consultant in that way. And so I had to sit with it, it as like, is it just me missing my sis? Is that what's going on? Like I'm not seeing, because I know about tiny marketing actions. I know about all the things you do, hmm. but I have you sort of categorized in a different sort of space on broader business and holistic business development. But it's very much a marketing book. And it's, yeah. um, but it's marketing done different. And so Let's talk about some of the different elements um, in the widest net in your approach on marketing that you think may be more relatable or inclusive of all of us who maybe are tired of the same marketing um, stick.
1: Yeah, it it is interesting how at different stages we tell the story about who we are and what we do. And also I think um, a lot of When we, I know just speaking for myself in the way that I do my work, I've worked with so many amazing people and like you have helped people really grow, expand their income, expand their markets, not being somebody who necessarily markets all the time saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, you know, here's all the, (laughs) here's all the work that I'm doing can sometimes not have people really understand the work that you're doing, which is why it's always important to, you know, to tell the story in an effective way as a foundational principle to the widest net, this really is my life's work as somebody who is a community builder um, that I have my degree in college was uh, community development and using non-formal education as a tool for social and economic change. So it goes deeply within my roots of really looking at um, community building as a, as a tool for economic acceleration. And what I realized in a lot of what I really did not like out there on the internet and what a lot of my clients didn't like is the terms about building an empire. We have a lot of empire language. There's a lot about um, just singular, you know, crushing your goals about we, and we literally use words like, I'm really excited to build my empire you are the history philosophy buff that we know. And so you probably could break down exactly what has happened in empires throughout the, throughout the decades. Generally empires are really fantastic for the person who's at the top and really not fantastic for most of the other people. A lot of what happens in the translation to me of what I call modern day empire culture is that there is a narrative that the person who's at the top of the empire, the founder, is the sole person who's making the change, that they are the sole expert that is doing all of the change for their clients. As you and I know, the reality is, for the people I work with, I am one of generally many different other service providers and other experts who are helping them to grow and scale their business. IP attorneys, CPAs, profit-first professionals, like a whole range of people who are doing that, creatives who are helping to build their business. So it, it was so important to me to look at a model that I actually think is a much more strategic, much more effective way to, if it is your goal, greatly increase your audience when instead of centering yourself as the person who gets all the attention, you really center your ideal customer in the middle of an ecosystem where you are a part of it playing a very specific and significant role, but you're also identifying and working with other ecosystem partners who are helping that person to reach their goals. So just as I stated before, these can be the product companies that build the products that we know our entrepreneur clients need to run their business. It's with other specific service professional experts um, thought leaders. It could be often also connecting with podcasts or events and other places that are providing specific capacity building for our ideal customers.
0: Yeah, um, I could say briefly without going too much into history and philosophy and just note the general trend that empires are to a T extractive from the things that they have dominion over, right? It's always extraction for the people at the top. Yeah, um, I can't think of an empire, and my listeners will tell me of one that was actually building a better ecosystem. It did that accidentally. If you think of the Roman Empire, the Greek empires, they they learned that when they built <laughs> um, connections and roads and things like that, that they were able to extract more and have more power. But the main point was not to build the roads; that was the byproduct of how they got there. And. You know, why we go back so far and, and stay tightly together, Pam, is that we're both ecosystem builders primarily. And the question yeah. is, how do we build the ecosystem, not how do we extract from the ecosystem? Um, and that change in, in business philosophy changes everything from the ground up, right? Because marketing doesn't become, how do I crowd other people out, how do I, you know, push people out of the market space and win, and and you know all those other things? It's how do I relate to who's in the marketplace and find my unique space? Different question, right? Um, yeah. We see some str- some strands of this in sort of blue ocean strategy and things like that, you know, and those themes, but. Um, I feel those are strongly the minority countercultural narrative, especially when you go into Silicon Valley, and especially when you go into big normal shareholder capitalism. It's how do we have an empire, as opposed to how do we build an ecosystem.
1: That's right, and there, there's a really tactical, pragmatic part of it. When I I look at um, in general these days, it could be more that. There is a client who has had success in many cases, maybe building a more of a B two C business where they're, you know, a thought leader, or they're they're uh, have a B two B business serving other business owners. But they might see an opportunity to go into a new space, like to sell into, you know, larger companies or license their content, partner with nonprofit organizations. There's a whole variety of ways of building certification and licensing programs. And when you think about that, when you just have that open question of, I know what I have is really good, which could be earlier in the stage as well of your entrepreneurial journey, but you know what you have is really good. And then you just think, how can I possibly find people who I could sell this to? Who would be all the potential people that I could partner with or what would be new markets? If it's an unfamiliar market to you, I was just working with a client the other day who has had clients that are at the sea level of large organizations, but she was like, just where do they hang out? Where do they get information? Where are they sharing ideas? And when you begin to look at it through the lens of an ecosystem model, there already are many watering holes, places in person and online where somebody really smart and wonderful has already gathered many of these people together. And it can be as, obscure sometimes as a special invitation to (laughs) a cabin in the woods with a very select group of people that somehow you find out and you get, you know, you become part of, or it can be doing things like I know I've done a lot within the last uh, number of years, which is partnering with larger companies that serve the small business market. You look at a company I'm just speaking um, next week at the time of this recording at a GoDaddy conference They have 18 million small business customers. When I can show up and provide value to that customer base for their their customer conference, that's a lot of one-to-many connections that I can make in that single instance as opposed to only doing things to try to draw people to my website or to try to get people to listen to my podcast. There's a very strategic way that I think you can get Uh, more effectively um, and quicker to a lot larger numbers of people and audiences. It may take some time, which it does, to really build those relationships. But strategically, I think it's a lot more effective.
0: Yeah, I think it's a lot more effective. And what we're really talking about is where do you put the work? And Pam and I share that work is not a bad word, right? It's, It's not something to be avoided. But you can make 15, 20 connections a day for 200 days in a row. Right. And, and go through that. And they might be deeper. They might have all sorts of different things. That's absolutely possible as a way to build that wide net. Right. Or you can show up to a GoDaddy event, which might take that same amount of time to really create that connection with them. So there's work one way or the other. What we don't want to feed the narrative is that you don't have to do some version of this work. Right. Um, because the field of dreams, as we know, like you might be a part of an ecosystem, but if no one knows you're over there, you're not going to get fed. Right. You're That's not right. going to have a place. So you still have to do marketing somewhere. Right. And somehow the question becomes how you do that. And yeah, absolutely. Um doing that. In fact, I was, um, I was in an interesting conversation with someone because I was promoting something on their behalf and um, there was an affiliate sort of play in it. And they were like, well, the affiliate rates so hard be- or so high because other people have to work harder to like get that sale and get that thing. And I was like, "Hmm, that's an interesting way to think about it. Right. Other people have to work harder. So that's what the rate is. But I was like, honestly, I've spent the last decade or so building trust and building relationships. Like if you just look in that moment in which I make it, they ask like, it's not very hard. If you look at the 10 years prior to that really hard. Right. And so I think what people, especially small business owners and entrepreneurs are doing is because of the way that they're marketing, they're having to simultaneously get attention and ask for the sale at the same time. And that's really hard to do. That is exactly right.
1: Yeah. It is really when you look at the reality of what it takes to build strong relational connections. And I just make a distinction between relational and transactional transactional is just, if you have something of value for me that I'm going to be connecting with you for that reason, It's how we get hit up sometimes right away when we connect with somebody on LinkedIn and all of a sudden get 12 messages that come through direct message. It it feels really weird. It can feel transactional. It can also feel real weird if you've been in this space for a long time and you might notice that somebody who you might have known through the years but didn't have any connection with at all suddenly just pops up out of nowhere and says, hey, I have a book. Can you share this link? If there's been no connection and you've had a personal relationship, it can feel a little bit weird. If you've had a relationship where there's always been good back and forth and we understand that everybody can get busy and it's like, hey, no matter what happens, we cannot talk for five years and you can always pop up and all, you know, I got you because you have a deeper relationship. That's more of a relational feel that you have for somebody. So there can be that strategic identification of really where the places where I want to play. And from a body of work perspective, what's a really critical part of this model is that not only are we really centering the customer and the person whose who's problem we want to solve or whose aspiration we want to help them reach, it really is about building the work of our craft. So as you look at the deeper mission behind the work that we do, what is that task at hand? For me, it's mm-hmm. just Thinking about strengthening in particular for folks of color, their entrepreneurial capabilities, you know, just creating much better tools and frameworks in which people can grow effective businesses to just reduce the kind of economic anxiety that one can feel when you don't have money (laughs) in your account and looking at how we're really strengthening the small business segment, that work is really, really big. And it plays out in many different ways. And there are so many things that are related to it. I'm constantly needing to be tied into understanding some of those deep deeper issues in order to do my craft effectively, in order to do my specific role, but then also to keep up with you know what's really happening. What are people working on? What are new tools that are happening? Is there somebody really interesting that's coming with a different perspective that I need to be informed in? That's craft work. That's that's really the work of your body of work as somebody responsible for, um, it, for really having expertise within your field. And so we need to have expertise in what we're doing. And just the other thing to pop up when you're talking about, um, you know, the important component where you can understand the ecosystem and other people who are doing the work. But then you also need to have a very specific point of view in a place where people can get to know you. And that's what I call your beacon, which is one of the chapters, which is for that which you do, it is your responsibility to be really clear. This is my point of view. This is my specific perspective on solving this problem. And you want to have a really carefully chosen primary communication vehicle for doing that, because it's not enough just to kind of be part of the solution. When people look to you, they're like, well, what's Charlie about? And what's he really bringing to this? That's unique.
0: Yeah, we've been using beacon um, pretty much the same way for a while now. Right. And so when you said that, when I said it, and I read, I was like, Oh, wait a second. Did we, what, how where this came from? But no, I think what it is, is it's a, why I like beaconing is more as opposed to the megaphone sort of thing. Cause it's not about shouting at people. It's not about like pushing your thing. It's like, I'm here. It's clear that I'm here. I am here for this reason. If this is not for you, then you can go on and do something else. Right. Um, but it's my job to build that beacon and have it and shine it bright and be clear and things like that. And so, um, and also what I like about it is, um, It puts the work of you being clear about what you do on you. Like it's, it pushes for clarity versus sound and noise, right? Um, Rather than screaming louder and screaming more um, to get people's attention. It really is about honing that so that it's clear and people get it from the very beginning. So I like that it inverts where the work is in that way. So um, tell us... I want to hang out here um, in this beacon work because I think that's where so many of our creative giants and so many of our entrepreneurs and hyper-creatives get stuck because mm-hmm. the beacon they want to put out is that I can do all the things, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I have all these interests and I, like, I'm like i a person with range or whatever word we want to use, right? Um, and that's... I understand the spirit of that, but it's problematic from a business perspective. Um, So really, as we're thinking about Beacon and looking at, you know, what's in the book, what are sort of three takeaways we can have about that that really will help us build a better Beacon?
1: So first, it is in understanding the particular point of view and frankly, set of offerings that you have that are designed to help solve the the core problems or aspirations of your ideal customer. You really, in uh, the way that I look at how it is that you create your offering. If we look in that example, again, of like in the bigger picture, I want small businesses, you know, everywhere to be strong, to have all the tools and capabilities they need within that, there are, there's a very specific way that I can understand how I can contribute to it and I can create offerings around that for the things that I know I can help people do uh, probably more effectively than other people within the ecosystem. And so with that, that becomes really your framework for the kind of content that you share on, on one hand is, you know, this is my specific method, this is the approach, here are examples that I'm going to be sharing for, for content. The other thing harkens way back to body of work. In so many conversations that I've had with folks over the years who I call them the don't fence me inners, or as Emily Wap, Nick would say the "Multipotentialites." I get it so much where you are an amazing, interesting person that has so many different gifts and talents. It is perfectly wonderful to have a whole range of things that you can uh, work with. But if all of your skills and gifts were a a cabinet filled with spices and you were cooking something because we're coming over to dinner you wouldn't want to dump them all in that one spot of of chili it would taste really terrible you want to be thinking about what am i actually cooking right now what does the recipe call for in order to really effectively use your ingredients and that's where as a business owner, you want to make choices because as I know your own body of work, Charlie, talks about so much, we have limited blocks of our working time. We really want to be deliberate. If you're trying to move forward seven different areas you know that you focus on or eight different things that you can do, it becomes really frustrating in order to have a strong signal and to really make it clear for people what it is that you're doing. The metaphor that I often use is you could imagine if on stage, maybe there are three main messages that you might be communicating through your beacon, because one doesn't have to just do one thing or serve just one audience. But as you get strategic clarity about where your focus is for the next 12 months, especially then behind the curtain, somebody can still come to you where they know that you happen to know how to illustrate books and you could do that project or, you know, that you know how to do lighting and set design for a special event That is work that you can do if it comes to you, but it becomes very muddled if you're trying to put all of that front and center. So being deliberate about how it is that you make that choice is really important.
0: Absolutely. Well, and there's the difference between, you know, what are you shining the light on to continue with this versus what's an opportunistic play, not in a negative opportunistic, but it's like, Hey, someone knows you do that thing. It fits in. It's part of the, you know, sort of that sort of the thing going on. Like, yeah, go ahead and do that. But if you're trying to market all those things, then it becomes a problem. Um, and on my side, as I've worked with clients, I've had to remind them that like, you know, each of what, each of those things you're trying to do, consider that they're actually a business, right? That little revenue stream that you think like, I'm just going to be a speaker, but then I'm going to do all this kind of things and then not understand all that it takes to actually be an in-demand speaker and have that going. Oh, and then you're making courses and then you're writing books and then you're coaching and then you're all those different things. Like each one of those is its mm-hmm. own business, Yeah. right? Um And it's hard for one person, especially solos and small teams, to manage all of those revenue streams, right? All of those businesses. So it just gives you some grace to say, you know what? That's, I, yes, I know it's an economic opportunity, but if I have this in that hidden link or in that secret menu, then I don't have to beat myself up about not growing that business and not knowing what I'm doing because it's something that I do three times a year. People know that people in the know know that I do it. I can charge what I want or what makes sense because I can turn that down because it's not my main business, but it doesn't mean you have to give it up. It's just to your point, like, you know, you might make great aioli, but aioli doesn't go on everything, right? Um, Sometimes you have to leave that in the fridge or wherever you put an aioli when you're not using it. So show that. That's right. Right. Um, And I love that. Just, again, you don't have to let it go, but it's about what you're shining the light on. Yeah.
1: Because it absolutely does take energy and it takes a lot of times more activity and promotion and sharing stuff and being on podcasts and writing about stuff in order for the message really to get through a lot more than I think most of us really understand. Whether you're going into a new market and you just realize how many conversations might I need to have with somebody who's a different kind of audience member than, you know, the person where I could have two client calls and and I would generally close both of them, right. Or maybe at least one, then you can go into a rotation with a new market where you might be, you know, talking to 15 people with nothing and 20, nothing. And then finally you get to 25 and you begin to have a little bit more information to make traction. It's just, it really does take a lot of time and energy. Um, so that sometimes is a hard thing. It's a hard thing for me to hear. I can just get as prickly as anybody else about wanting to continue to do something. But as I have really wonderful people around me uh, question and poke and prod a little bit about it, then it's really helpful to say, gosh, I am really passionate about this. This is really fun. But if I want, if I'm saying yes to that, it means I'm not putting the energy into something that's a really important strategic priority that's really building the future of my business.
0: Yeah. um, I can attest that Pam can get prickly in the same way that I can get prickly. Right. When, when someone's like, Hey, why are you doing that thing? (laughs) Right. Um, What are you, is that like 2014 Pam speaking there? Or is that 2014 Mm -hmm. Like, ah, get off of it. It's my thing. But you know, that leads us to this next point about, about partnerships and about referral partnerships specifically. Because I think when our beacons are too diffuse, what we forget is it makes it harder for other people to refer us. It makes it harder for people to be like, oh, that's a Pam thing. That's a Charlie thing. It's like, well, it might be. I don't know what they're doing. Like, you don't have that strong thing. So let's transition from beacon to partnership because I think that's, you know, I love that, that you did that in the book. But I, I think that's, that's a piece that people are missing when it comes to building success packs and, and partnerships.
1: Yeah, it it really is. It is a look at there 10 different steps overall to the method of ways that you can strategically really understand the ecosystem where your customer lives and then specifically look at ways to build opportunity. And by design, partnerships is usually a little bit later. It's later in the model. It's in, I think, chapter 9 of 10. Mm-hmm. And that really is for a good reason. A lot of people are right to be a little bit nervous and worried. Maybe you've had a negative experience in the past. You have you know co-founded a company and ended up having a negative situation, or it can feel very vulnerable in order to find the right kind of people who you can trust to deliver work. And it also means that somebody can be super wonderful at a certain stage of their life or business. And then stuff happens to all of us where somebody who's been a really great partner suddenly gets really busy or something happens on the personal side. And that's not the case. So partnerships can be really hugely valuable and there can be a range of different activities that you can do in a partnership situation. It can be something like you and I did for three years, which is to lead a a retreat, uh, Twice a year for three years and we each had our own businesses, we still had our own client base, but we specifically chose to do an event together because we really liked that particular connection together. So it can be something like that of doing an event together. There can be uh, doing some kind of a co-marketing. One of the concepts I talk about in the widest net is a PB&J partner, peanut butter and jelly partner, which is somebody who offers a highly complementary but non-competitive type of service. And a lot of the work I'm doing now with building licensing and certification programs Every single one of my clients in that area needs an IP attorney. So I'm constantly referring people to my amazing IP attorney at Sharon Turek at Legal and Creative because I know that she specifically will take care of them. She understands licensing agreements and she will set them up. There can be situations like that where you know that in order to truly help your client meet the specific needs that that you're helping them with, they need to have a trusted professional. And it can be really beneficial, I think, for both peanut butter and jelly partners. It's helpful for Sharon, right, to get referrals, but it's just as helpful for me to know that somebody is going to be really well taken care of because after they've invested and we've spent all this time building a program, the last thing I would want is that it has some kind of a leak within their IP protection strategy that can be something that's really important and then a lot of the other kinds of partnerships that I've been experimenting with over the last number of years can be something like a brand partnership. So it's a very different type of a partner. It's not like you and I two entrepreneurs, solar, you know, with small teams that are doing the business, but it can be a much bigger brand that where they are passionate about serving their customer, providing really strong content. And so I've done a lot of things, everything from speaking to building specific content uh, that they might use for their own lead magnet in the digital marketer terms, right? Something for a trade of an email. I can write an ebook for a big company. Under my own name, so I'm not a ghostwriter, but actually I can be positioned as a business expert, which is beneficial to me so that I get more exposure to their market, but it also provides something that will be sticky and helpful for them as a brand. So there's a lot of different ways that you you can look at partnership, and it is as wonderful as it is really challenging, knowing that you have humans that are involved over a period of time in building those partnerships.
0: Absolutely. I think it's um what's the what's the saying? If you want to go fast, go along, but if you want to go like long, go go together. Um there's some quote like that. But you know, that's the thing that I would say as we're riffing on this is that um most, if not all, of the partnerships I've been in have been extremely catalytic to To growth, whether it's a PB and J partnership, Hmm. whether it's um, Pam, I don't know if you remember, like way back in the day, I was a partner with Citrix um, and and doing webinars and and things like that. Um, You know, normally on the PB and J partnership, people pull me in as a structuralist and help people with the actual systems and processes to get things done. And so I pair nicely with visionary and big idea types, right, that need to have that grounded. But each one, even the ones that didn't Hmm. endure actually. were really catalytic because you learn, oh, this is how I do business. This is what I am about. And this is what I'm not about. Right. And so um, they're definitely worth building into. And again, I think, how are we going to talk about this? There's a point here where I want to talk about for women in BIPOC, who, when it comes to partnerships um, miss out for a lot of different reasons, right? Some of it's structural, some of it's not having to do with that. But the other part of it is just seeing where you have value and in actually initiating that partnership. And so I know you've done a lot of work with this. So mm-hmm. maybe talk about this. If we're on this side of maybe we're not getting picked and maybe we're not used to picking ourselves, mm-hmm. how do we start um, really positioning and, and getting into the partnership um, flow?
1: Yeah, it happens all the time and it's really interesting in the work we do at the Learning Lab because there are so many folks um, who are doing amazing work and, right, due to the systemic inequities are just not being picked for financing, for opportunities and so forth. What I see that ends up leading often to the longer term success is a lot of, first, community connections. It's not, I don't think, surprising that many, many folks, knowing that there have been systemic inequities, and we look at, you know, Black entrepreneurs that are here in this space. We have a lot of programs that are led by our, what we call our key guardians, um, folks who, who lead programs who have keys to our space. There is so much connection, you know, support, partnership. There can be conferences that are led by and for Black entrepreneurs. There can be certain spaces that are specifically dedicated um, on one hand to providing a space that understands that cultural context. Lamar Tyler from Traffic Sales and Profit, who's one of the um, folks that I featured in the book, talked about maybe 90% of the kinds of things that he might talk about within his Facebook group that's exclusively for, African-American entrepreneurs might be things you can hear in other places, but that last 10% is critically important where people understand there's a cultural context. Sometimes there's a spiritual context. That's really important. So that can be some, some cases in which you can really look at having a market. That's not constantly going to be questioning your authority. Um, In other ways, I see a lot of intersectional, collaboration where there might be folks who are working strategically together and so you might know somebody who is connected who can help get a meeting you know in the door or you know introduce you to be a speaker somewhere and those can be folks from different communities that can have different levels of access or privilege and for some folks that's a way in which those doors are beginning to be broken down it's really interesting a lot of what i'm seeing here in, in especially black and native entrepreneur um, situations is building specific spaces that are really run by and for those communities. And I think it's awesome and amazing. And I can totally understand it as opposed to knocking, knocking, waiting, 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 you know, for access to happen. There's so much creativity and, and so much talent that um, a lot of time can be wasted in just um, asking for access.
0: Absolutely. Um, we have similar things happening here in Portland along those fronts. Um, I'm also really, really excited to see what's happening in the funding space with, you know, firms like, um, you know, back, Backstage Capital, um, Rare Breed Ventures, Overlooked, right? There are a lot of companies now that are focused, a lot of funds that are focusing specifically on underestimated or overlooked um, founders, hmm. And it's just learned that we have to prioritize that because the traditional channels um, are just not doing well about really pulling in the resources that, that entrepreneurs need entrepreneurs of color and a lot of women need um, Mm -hmm. that are asymmetric from their broader society. So really excited about what's happening in this space.
1: For sure. I just read a a news newsletter article from the plug, which is a, a great newsletter that comes out about a, um, there were founders who got 50 million dollars of investment for a firm that focuses on addressing the issue of diversity and hiring but they were two white guys (laughs) and it was like not even really intending to go out and getting any startup funds there was of course a lot of conversation to say the least um on twitter about you know a lot of the foundation and the racial equity work that that work of the firm is built upon is really built upon a lot of black founders who could not get any funding whatsoever. And it's just ironic and very frustrating, right? To see those kinds of things happen.
0: Yeah. Um, talk about losing two or three days after that one came out. I was like, are you kidding me? Are you (laughs) in, in what's who was in the, who, Oh, who was not in these rooms for someone to say, Hey, maybe like, let's think about this for a second. Right. Um, so mm, I'm going to set that to the side. Otherwise I'll get derailed. But yeah, we see a lot of that sort of stuff happening. Um, okay. That was, that was, that one came out and I was living about two or three days yeah. um, because it's the same pattern um, that we see and why, why we need separate spaces um, in that sense. Um so the funny thing about writing books the way we write is that at some point they always end up working on us um, mm-hmm. and start teaching us at the same time. So um can you give us the one, two, or three things that writing the widest net taught you or that the widest net taught you about your own business and journey?
1: Yeah. I think the first is it was very cathartic, and it was very difficult to finally get all the model out of my head. There's part of the way that i've I've looked at the world that, given the frame and the socialization about empire culture being really good, it's all about accumulating individual wealth, you have to look a certain way, be a certain age, you know, et cetera, in order to be successful. I knew that that wasn't right, but it sometimes can feel as a creative person who writes books, there's a a lot of years of of fog where you get a little bit of a picture of like, oh, there's one part of it, but it's not the whole thing. And it just was, it was challenging, but it also was a deep part of the work to really just take the time to be dedicated to pursuing, like understanding how the pieces fit together of the model And I am an author practitioner. So I really write about the work that I do with clients. And so applying all of these ideas, seeing the metaphors and and parts of the model that resonated or didn't was a really critical part of doing it. So there's a part, I think, of reinforcing for myself now that I can step back at the final book and go, oh, wow, (laughs) that's all done. It has language. It makes sense. I can see where one piece comes together. It's always what feels so good about really bringing a book together. And for me, it's the favorite part of doing it. Um, Of course, for the reader, which is really important, but primarily as the writer of saying, yes, this is my point of view. This is a method that has been tested. So that is one piece that I think that's really important. The other piece is it really does drive the entire way that I do look at my business and looking at the structure of us here, we, with the main street learning lab, by day, we always say it's my office and my husband's office. He's a traditional healer. Um, And so we see clients and are are working with folks all the time. It's an essential part to have in the evenings and the weekends and in the non, you know, COVID times when we're, when we're meeting in person where we have all kinds of events that are led by and for the community. And one can look at it if you look through the lens of purely where is the financial return happening that we choose to offer the space at no cost for the folks who are leading programs here, that you can look at it in that very like charity model. And it really is not. when when you look at the benefit that is happening from day in and day out, Literally being on Main Street, having people walk in off the street that are sharing all kinds of different perspectives of what they're working on in business, of all different kinds of businesses at all different stages of business. And then because of really working in an ecosystem model, now I'm doing work with the city and with the regional art center and with nonprofits and funders and, and brands, as we're really looking at community economic development, it has widened my lens so much more in the work that I'm doing of just recognizing uh, opportunity on one hand in order to grow and, and to, to play a role, but also in just reinforcing the fact that it is impossible to completely solve a problem by yourself. I think as a sole expert, it's impossible for me to solve every problem. If I'm just looking to myself for all the answers and for my clients, the very best thing that I can do is to be introducing them to other wonderful people. It just I can feel really, really good about the pieces that I do, and I'm proud of that. And then I can feel really good that they're meeting other partners. So that's probably the biggest. I think the biggest lesson for it. I we just yesterday did a photo shoot of a lot of the key guardians, the folks who run programs here, with the book because my friend, La Vista, who I do a lot of work with here, was we have a beautiful storefront window, like what a great thing as an author. I have a huge, (laughs) huge window I can do as a a display for my own book. And at first she was like, oh, let's get a picture of you holding the cover of the book and something about it just felt wrong where I was like, wait a minute, this is not, it's not just about me. So we ended up doing a photo of all of the different key guardians um, and my kids and everybody who day in and day out are actually part of who contributed stories to the book, who contributed background, expertise, insight. And it felt so wonderful to have that. And and really, we we all formed a circle before we took the picture. And I recognized that this was something that I'm bringing this book out into the world as a steward for this particular point of view, that we all need each other, we can look after our own well-being, that together we're really stronger and we really are doing amazing things in each person in their individual way of strengthening the economic ecosystem. And it just reminded me, I said, you know, I will never tell your stories for you that I'm going to tell my point of view as the person like describing the model. Um, but it, I was really proud to be able to be part of this. And it just, it was very clear. I did not come up with every idea in the book and write it on myself, you and I were laughing as you said, oh no, like, did you use Beacon first? Did I, you and I for years have gone back and forth where we're so, it's so important to be giving credit for the IP that comes from the idea that comes from one or the other. To me, it's an example of what I love about you as a partner is you're always super open and I am hope I also model being open of like, oh wow, like, let me make sure that I give credit every time I talk about connect, create, consume, I'm constantly linking back to you and that model that that you gave. But it just really brought to light in a very visceral way, this really is collective work. And I know my role was the person who codified it and wrote a book about it, but it is not only my, my book.
0: You know, we joke about the family, and if you don't know about the family, it's the big family of Pam and, and people around her, right? Um, and it's a thing. Um, and, you know, you being the mayor of, you know, different communities that you're in, but I think probably the best way, only people who've listened to this podcast and read your book are going to get it, but you are an exemplar stu- a steward of the ecosystems that you're in. Right. And um, you're right. If I would have been walking down uh, Main Street and saw that book with just you holding up that picture of you in the book, I'd have been like, and yeah, that one, that one's all for Pam, for Pam. Mm-hmm. That one's off. It might be, not, might not be off for other people, but for Pam, that's off because she is such the center of this net and this web. Um, and so um, I'm glad that you caught it and glad that you sensed it in that way. Um, So, as the guest on today's episode, you get to leave our listeners with a challenge or an invitation, depending upon Mm. which one most resonates with you. So, based upon what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do?
1: I, I would love to invite your listeners because if you resonate conceptually with knowing that you don't have to market your business by yourself, that you can be identifying partners. It is really easy to get overwhelmed with the idea of where to start. And so the very first place that I often recommend that people start is to ask your very favorite clients or customers, who else do you work with who you love to solve the kind of problem that we're working on together? And where you can learn many times you can be working with somebody for a long time and it may not come up in the topic of conversation of what you're working on, but they're like, Oh, wow. You know, I have this financial planner who's totally amazing or my CPA is great. Or this graphic designer is amazing. It's important that you ask the people who you love working with because you know that there's a great values and mission alignment with those folks. And the same is true where they might have mission alignment with one of their other partners If they are comfortable and only with their permission, if they're comfortable, if you reach out maybe to one of those partners and have a 15 or 20-minute conversation just to learn more about them, tell me a little bit more about your business, you know, what do you love about it, who are some of your other customers, and then they can do the same for you, those can be the beginnings of some really wonderful, just a casual kind of peanut butter and jelly kind of introduction. And that is a wonderful place to start to just begin to realize when you think about it, that person probably has a whole bunch of other clients that possibly could be a fit for what you're doing. And there, you've already gone through some of the pre screening components by knowing that they're kind of matching with somebody who is already very beloved to you.
0: That's fantastic. Well, Pam. As you know, I enjoy every conversation with you. So thanks for joining us to talk about um, the widest net and how we can do business differently, but how we can market our businesses differently.
1: It is always awesome to be here. Thank you, Charlie.
0: All right, listeners. So you heard it for Pam. Ask your favorite customer or client who's the peanut butter to your jelly? With the now and the next week, Just set up a conversation, of course, with permission from from all parties involved. Until next time, stand tall, start finishing, and work better together. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.